This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. So how are state child welfare agencies approaching the Family First Prevention Services Act? And what are they doing to develop their prevention plans? Are they taking a wait-and-see approach to learn what other states may be doing, or diving right in and developing plans? Are they scouring the Title IV-E Prevention Services Clearinghouse to find evidence-based programs that meet the Family First criteria, or continuing to rely on programs they are already implementing? Are they looking at their plans as a matter of compliance, finding ways to make their plans fit the legislation, or are child welfare agencies using the legislation to find ways to augment what they're currently doing well? Well, welcome into the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast, everyone. I'm Tom Oates. We continue our conversation around the Family First Prevention Services Act with a look at how one state decided to, in their words, take a leap and dive into developing their plans as quickly as they could. We're talking about the state of Utah, which, along with Washington, D.C., were some of the earliest jurisdictions to have their Title IV-E prevention plans approved by the Children's Bureau. What you'll hear today is the environment that Utah's Division of Children and Family Services operates under, which is a multidisciplinary environment within the Utah Department of Health. Now, that cross-system collaboration combined with the steps the state had taken a few years back to shift away from removing children from their families where possible, put them in a position to respond quickly to the Family First law. But you'll also hear about the state's decision-making process to identifying the prevention programs to implement. It didn't start by looking at what programs were approved or evidence-based or available or even the funding streams. It started with its needs the state's needs, and the needs of the children and the families being served. Now, Utah's journey is completely different from Washington, D.C.'s, which is why we wanted to share both Utah's and D.C.'s approach on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Now, you can find the episode where we focused on Washington, D.C. over at childwelfare.gov. Just search podcasts. We want to give other jurisdictions a sense of the planning that went on and how these jurisdictions looked at Family First through their unique lens, taking advantage of Family First in ways that suit them best. Now, to top it off, as we record this in the spring of 2020, we dove into how the coronavirus impacts the implementation of prevention plans, providing a challenge and foreshadowing what we could see as permanent fixtures in the future. We got together with Diane Moore, the director of Utah's Division of Children and Family Services, and Justin Naylor, head of the Quality and Design Division of the Utah Department of Health. While the state felt their prevention approach was well aligned to Family First, there were still struggles and tough decisions they had to make. And we talk about it here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Justin Naylor and Diane Moore, welcome in to the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Thank you. So, Diane, let's start with you and go through Utah's journey for me and describe where where the state was, you know, the, the approach that they took when Family First Prevention Services Act was was signed into law. 
you, Tom. We're so excited to be here with you. Um, for us, Family First Act is um, sort of very natively and organically related to our work in Utah. And so when it was signed into law, I think like all the other states, we were very surprised, but we were very, very excited and very, very optimistic. Um, and the reason for that is Utah um, already through our waiver project had been really working on what we called our homeworks program. And philosophically, we had made this shift that children belonged in their communities, schools, homes, whenever safely possible. That foster care really should be um, an intervention of last resort, a temporary intervention, and an intervention that helped to support and strengthen families um, on their trajectory of transformation into being able to parent their children. Um, so when the Family First Act passed, uh, it was very refreshing to us to be able to say, wow, finally, we're going to have this environment where we are going to be able to fundamentally shift the finances of child welfare to support the vision that is our state's vision. Um, we're a very family-friendly state. We're a very, um, uh, uh, how do I say, um, eager state to kind of move progressively into those best practices. Um, we care deeply about our child welfare system and we had a unique environment um, with our legislature um, because of our, our waiver project with our legislature, with our courts, we had kind of already been talking about what it meant for kids to be safe at home and what it meant to strengthen parents in order to serve their children in their own home safely without requiring a removal. So it was exciting. I mean, we were, we were really thrilled. What were the big things that you may have found from the waiver project that you were able to incorporate or carry over into the prevention plan? So our waiver project, which was called Homeworks, was really focused, like I said, on keeping kids home. And our waiver project, um, we were able to develop structured decision-making tools. We were able to build sort of this internal philosophy and infrastructure about what home-based services would look like. We were able, over those years of the waiver, to sort of grease the path for Family First in that all of our community partners were having dialogue with us about it's kind of scary to keep kids home when, when you've traditionally used foster care as your intervention. And so all of those conversations had been going on for years. And so that really primed us well. But what we also learned was as well as we were intentioned and as much as we had the right tools to help us make those decisions and as much as we even had the correct philosophy, what we needed were evidence-based services that would make a difference in families' lives. And our waiver project didn't move all the way to those robust services. And we found ourselves limited in our implementation and in that transformation of our practice um, due to the fact that those services didn't exist in our communities and our waiver project didn't fully fund, at least in a sustainable way, um, those services being a permanent part because the waivers were course, temporary, um, a permanent part of our community and what it had to offer. So when Family First comes out and, you know, you're, you're kind of seeing this ability, this kind of pathway opened up, when you looked at, at all the provisions and everything, it, it sounds like that when, when it first dropped and you're reading through it, 
that part of it had your eyebrows raised and that like, you know, this kind of was written just when we were talking earlier before we recorded that it really aligned to Utah. It really spoke to Utah. In what ways? Because there are other states and jurisdictions out there that may be trying to find a way to fit family first as opposed to finding a way to make family first fit for them. So what right. was it where you kind of found that, all right, these, these, are, these are the puzzle pieces that fit exactly with the way we're operating right now or want to operate in the future? Yeah. Uh, again, for us, I think it, it was the prevention services and the funding of the prevention services that was the big calling card for us. That was, that was the big thing. Um, there are other things integrated into it that we absolutely loved. Um, but probably weren't the things that drew us to it as much. Um, but for other states, those very things might be their calling card. Um, child welfare is complex. Child welfare is broad. Um, so for instance, if you were a jurisdiction that didn't already really focus on child and family teaming processes, family first was going to nudge you in that direction. If you were a state or a jurisdiction that didn't, um, already sort of say, okay, we're, we're going to move away from this kind of usage of congregate care settings. I think Family First has some real um, strength and support in, in helping you move that direction. For Utah, for Utah, because every, every jurisdiction is so different, it really was the prevention services and the dollars for prevention. Um, that is how you sort of, I, I keep using the term flip the system, but that is how we see family first. Family first is the thing that not in one year, not in two years, not even in three years, but in 10 years, we will look back and we will say, this was a transformative time in child welfare where the system became less of a foster care system, less of a foster care to adopt system, and more of a home-based strengthening families and keeping kids connected to who they are, um, their culture, their race, their biology, their language, their um, just who they are without all the grief and loss of a foster care episode. That really is our motivating factor with Family First. There's a lot of that that also points to all of the other aspects uh, that make a child human, which involve a lot of different systems. And so I'll, I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna completely plagiarize um, uh, the folks from Washington D.C. when they talk about they are the child welfare agency, not the child welfare system, because the system is bigger. Um, Absolutely. I'd like, I'd like to get a sense from from Utah's perspective of that state system that has you and your partner agencies working so well. It's easy enough for someone to say, hey, you guys should talk to each other and, and start to coordinate. Okay, but how does that actually operationalize? What is that system that's, that's enabled you know, your agency and your partners to get to work so well and so quickly? Yeah, I think that that is so critical. Um, another thing that really um, helped us embrace Family First was that we had been having conversations about being an integrated child welfare system for not just months, but for years before that. Um, under the leadership of our uh, department director, Ann Williamson, and um, with our other outside community partners. So across our 
um, our courts, our, our juvenile justice system, our disability system, with our foster care providers, with our residential treatment providers. Um, some of these conversations had been going on for quite a while. And the philosophy that the child welfare agency is not the child welfare system is absolutely one that I think we had already bought into. Now, that said, we still had our, our barriers. Um, I look at some of the county systems where one administrator is over everything, you know, housing and, and, uh, TANF and, um, you know, uh, child welfare and, and juvenile justice and all of those, I think they're, they're positioned very well to be integrated. For some of us, we're not structured that way. Um, our mental health system is a pass through to local mental health agencies, not so it's state administered. Um, but really county or locally run. And then our child welfare system is all state administered. I mean, it's a very interesting and complex system. And I imagine that that's replicated across dozens and dozens and dozens, possibly hundreds of jurisdictions across the nation. And so this concept of being an integrated uh, system, I think is very, very important. Um, even since Family First, it has empowered us to take that to the next level. Um, we've been working on identifying core values across all of our providers with guardians, ad litem, and the courts, and our attorneys, and providers, and all of this, to really say, who are we as a system, and what's the litmus test of our values? And Family First informs that, and Family First... Um, uh, speaks to that. It's, it's been interesting because you said, you know, you can see where uh, family first doesn't, uh, doesn't resonate with everyone similarly. And I think that that's so true. I don't think you need to be bullied by family first. I think if you step back and you look at where the Children's Bureau is going and the vision that each jurisdiction shares with them, and you look at your own vision as a jurisdiction, you can step back at family first and say, what are the parts of this that are going to help us create our vision? I don't think Utah ever saw ourselves as a, in a reaction to family first. I think we saw family first as a tool for us to achieve where we knew we wanted to go. So when family first comes out, you know, the applying of the tool takes in this wonderful form of, all right, well, what works for us? And what programs can we apply? What have we learned from our past? And so, Justin, when you start to look at the programs and services, I'm curious to what what you what the state used to identify and prioritize the needs that then you want to address through programs and services. You can't exactly say, "Hey, this works and this works over there," and let me find out. No, oh, okay, this is this is one that that you know seems to have a lot of evidence around it. But you've got to make sure that you start with, all right, what do we need versus what do we, you know, what do we implement? I'm curious, again, what did you use to identify and prioritize the needs? Because everything can't just happen, you know, at 100 percent for every, you know, every issue, every system. Yeah, it's a great question. And that was um, a big challenge for us. It was an exciting time for us to jump into that. Um, and as Anne, I mean, excuse me, as Diane mentioned, we... Um, 
I think we were well positioned to be able to start that conversation, both because of the work that had previously been done on the waiver and also because of the integrated work we had done um, across our department with child welfare and juvenile justice and substance abuse and mental health and our disability agency. Um, it was easy to pull that group together because we were already operating together in many ways. And so we were able to um, pull those folks uh, into a team. Uh, we created a uh, essentially a work group uh, that included representatives from our department and all of our divisions across human services to look at where our needs were greatest in child welfare, also in juvenile justice, um, because uh, we wanted this to be an integrated approach and leveraging um, family first across our system. And so we um, came together and, and really started with some heat mapping around where our needs were greatest um, and looking at uh, multiple, multiple factors such as age, um, type of need, so mental health or substance use disorder or parent skills, um, uh, the uh, geographic areas of need. Our, our state is uh, somewhat unique in that we have a lot of um, some areas along the, the, the core of our state that are highly populated, and then we have a lot of very rural areas throughout our state. And so looking at um, where our needs were greatest within each of those areas and, um, and then mapping out um, what, um, what interventions we were going to need across the state based on those needs, um, what, what what areas of need, again, mental health or substance use disorder or parent skills, um, we're going to need the most attention across those areas. So once you, you know, have to sift through, geez, which need is the most important, which is a tough, a tough, a tough set of decisions to make. What went into the, the decision-making approach for which programs to choose or consider, Con considering you had to balance needs and look at compliance and sustainability? What went into deciding which programs to choose or, or even consider? Yeah, that's that was a, um, a challenging discussion, and it's ongoing. It's something that we have to continue to do work on as we move forward. The we um, really looked first at what existed in our communities. Um, what, where could we leverage strengths that we had um, throughout the state? And uh, we have um, within uh, our child welfare system, within our mental health system, we had interventions that we were using. And so we conducted an evaluation and assessment um, of what was out there. Um, what were we able to leverage that we were already providing? We surveyed all of our providers um, throughout all of our systems to identify what services existed that maybe we weren't aware of entirely and what was available. We definitely did not have everything we wanted. And when we looked at the interventions that we um, had available and and looked at what was available on the clearinghouse, which in the um, beginning days, of course, was very, very sparse. Um, we spent a fair amount of time looking at what the evidence said on existing clearinghouses that um, were reputable and um, trying to identify uh, what was going to be easiest to, um, to implement. Uh, um, and, and by easiest, I don't mean just simple, but meet our needs in a manner that we saw as sustainable um, and, um, and that we could get implemented in a reasonable period of time. Um, and, uh, and if any of that existed in our, in our communities, 
um, at the time that we were starting. And then um, we just mapped out based on our heat mapping, based on what was available, um, based on what the evidence base said for uh, the things that we had available. Um, we uh, identified services that we could easily expand or scale um, that we had existing in our communities and more so new services that we could implement that address the areas of need, the age, the geographic areas um, that, um, that we could stand up that we thought were likely to uh, meet um, the high standard that the um, clearinghouse has for, um, for these evidence-based services. And, um, and then that became our starting point. Our starting point became um, the uh, pushing forward with the interventions, with the programs that addressed our highest need areas that were um, uh, relatively easy for us to move forward um, in uh, throughout our state in both rural and urban areas. And, um, and then this was an iterative process for us because we... Um, we didn't anticipate starting with everything right up front. Um, instead, um, we took a pretty practical approach in the sense that we wanted to identify, again, wanted to address those highest need areas um, uh, in uh, the most sustainable um, way to move forward and then continue to work on what else do we need to build um, for the things we wanted to get some, some more intensive interventions in our system um, that we didn't have. Uh, but that was not our starting point. Our starting point was what do we have, what we can build, what can we build on, and then let's continue to move this forward step by step, adding the things that are addressing the areas that we don't currently um, have well addressed. You have to understand, Utah didn't come rich into this. Um, we're a very fiscally conservative state that does not invest robustly. I mean, I, I, I think we're uh, a very Western state that way. We don't invest robustly in social service programs. We are not a state that had a broad Medicaid expansion. Um, when I uh, had the opportunity to meet with other leaders, it was very clear that that in the world of evidence-based practices, especially that were already being paid for by child welfare agencies or through local Medicaid programs, um, I was very surprised to, to learn how much broader the service delivery spectrum was other places in the nation. Um, and so when we say we started at step one, I mean, really, we started at step one on a lot of these, these evidence-based services in our community. Um, some of them existed to a certain degree in our mental health services in our community or in our substance use disorder services in our community. Um, but we have a lot of room to grow. And that is why um, it's really important that you don't compare yourself to other to other places. Um, I think it can be really tempting to say, wow, look at that state. Or, you know, there are several states or jurisdictions that I can say, wow, they really have an exceptional service delivery, even just going into family first. Um, I even heard some jurisdictions that were concerned that would they be able to draw down enough dollars in family first because their Medicaid programs already covered so many of these services showing up on the clearinghouse. And um, in Utah, these iterative steps are, are truly iterative. I mean, we're starting at the beginning and saying, how do we get the first one service? How do we get the first three services? How do we get the first five services? And how do we grow them in a way that is going to be sustainable in our community um, so that we're not investing money in their growth and then 
don't don't have the capacity to utilize them quickly enough, if that makes sense, or or to to even keep them in business. I mean, that's kind of where we're at. Um, so it's been really, really interesting. And Justin and his team have done a phenomenal job um, in our shared multidisciplinary team of um, really chunking this. And, and I, perce- I perceive that this is going to com- continue, that we're just going to keep kind of chunking at it one bite at a time until someday we're going to lean back and go, oh my gosh, are we kind of there? Are we almost there? Is this really making an impact? Um, that doesn't happen on day one with an implementation like this. And, you know, it, it really doesn't. You know, you mentioned how other states or other jurisdictions you look at and, hey, they're doing a great job. They look at you and say, hey, you're doing a phenomenal job. But it also uh, points to the idea of viewing family first through your own lens. You know, um, how will this work for you? How does this work on your needs, no matter where you are across the country? So viewing family first is can be different for for, uh, a lot of other jurisdictions along the way. So I'd love to get your sense just on Utah's journey on implementing the provisions. What part of it became the most difficult for Utah? So I don't think there's a jurisdiction out there that would read the family first legislation and say, oh, it's perfect. It is just what I needed. It will guide me and lead me to exactly where I want to go. I mean, we read it. And while there were things that absolutely spoke to us and we were excited about the funding structure changes, um, there's a lot in there. And there is a lot that you have to kind of pay attention to. And I will be frank that we, we looked at each piece. We analyzed it from um, a policy perspective. We analyzed it from a legal perspective. We analyzed it from a social work and best practices perspective. And then we said, okay, what are the pieces that we in Utah are going to um, extrapolate, exploit, take advantage of, take the benefit of to fulfill our vision as we're Um, moving forward to become the best child welfare agency we can and in line with the Children's Bureau and their vision for child welfare. Um, And what are the things that don't speak to us? I mean, I'm just going to be frank. You cannot bring your A game to every single item in, in Family First. You just, you can't do it. You will get stymied. You will get overwhelmed. You will get stifled. Um, what you have to do is step back and say, uh, we use the term of, of automobiles or transportation. So, you know, we're going to build a Cadillac in this area. And quite frankly, it might be a moped or a skateboard in this area, but it will, it will comply, but it won't necessarily be our, our, our shining gem of an example of implementation. And we had to look at what we really, really valued. And, um, and we also had to acknowledge what we already did well in that we felt already met some of the requirements. So I mentioned before our child and family teaming, we didn't have to do a lot of work there to still be making decisions on the QRTP side and child and family teams and things like that. Um, Some of the things felt hard and felt burdensome. And I will even acknowledge felt unnecessary for our system because, you know, when you're writing family first, I would imagine you're writing it for all these jurisdictions across the nation that have different strengths and different deficits and, and where one state might need the law to sort of lead them to a certain place, um, uh, the way we do with evidence-based practices in prevention of foster care. Um, other states may have strengths in those areas. So it's been really interesting um, 
there are, there are parts we don't love. There are parts we um, did only what was the bare minimum to make sure we were in compliance because that wasn't where we wanted to put our focus, our resources, our money, our time. Uh, so really analyzing that from your own jurisdiction's perspective um, while still being humble enough to say, how can this make us better is I think the challenge and I think should be encouraged um, because, uh, you know, there, like I said, there were just things that were not natural for us. And I think it's okay to say that out loud. And I, and I imagine that everyone's feeling a little bit overwhelmed with some pieces of this and figuring out how do I comply enough? I mean, for us, it's very obvious we wanted to harness the prevention dollars. So of course you have to start where on the QRTP side, you have to start on all the other side that is not the part that excites you so that you can then be compliant so that you can then draw down the prevention dollars. And, um, that part was challenging as well. There's this need versus want kind of decision that has to happen. Uh, and it sounds like, and, and, and those both, you know, what do we, what do we need to do? You can think compliance. What do we want to do? You can look at family first and say, Ooh, what are our, what are our options? What's on the clearinghouse? But the way it sounds like for Utah is you've ask those questions, not externally of what do we need to do to comply or what is available to us out there, but asking those questions internally in terms of like Justin talked about, how do you do a needs assessment for yourself? And how do you just turn around and say, all right, what do we desire from it? So uh, I'd, I'd be curious to get your thoughts if, you know, another jurisdiction asked for your advice or your opinion or to look back on, on the journey as you fleshed out your plans, what would you advise jurisdictions to ask themselves or to identify within themselves as, as something necessary that they would need to, to, to have an effective plan? Yeah, I would say what kind of child welfare system are you trying to build? Because when you apply that litmus test to even the things that don't initially make sense to you in Family First, you kind of step back and say, well, what was the intent of that part? You know, what was the intent of accreditation? What was the intent of an independent assessor in placements of QRTP and regular reviews in QRTP? What's the intent of the, the child and family teaming? What's the intent of the prevention dollars? Um, you, and you step back and you say, how does this serve families? If you keep families at the absolute core forefront of what you're trying to create and the vision of a child welfare system that you're trying to create, it guides you and it speaks to you about, about, about what to do, about how to chunk it, about how to prioritize it. What is critical first? What is critical most that you can take from family first and apply to your system to achieve the best outcomes for families as, um, as meaningfully and as expeditiously, expeditiously as, as possible? Um, that's the analysis I would do because it, it can get really, um, it can get really overwhelming. Um, it's a big piece of legislation. Um, but like I said, if you view it from where you want to take it, um, there's a lot of gems in there and it's loaded with best practices and don't, don't narrow yourself about what those best practices exactly have to look like. Focus on why are they best practices and what could they look like that would be meaningful? What, what could they look like for you, right? What could they look like in the way your, your environment uh, operates? So Utah's plan, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and, and not to do that, I don't want to sound arrogant like, 
like it's it's to conform it to you in a way that's not humble or doesn't move it forward the way family first meant to but i think you can rem- you can remain teachable and you can remain humble while also saying how does this work for our system and still honor all the parts of it well, part of that has to also identify you know what does success look like along the way and you know Clearly, you talked about it's not necessarily going to, you know, turn the, the, the light switch doesn't happen in one year or two years. And you're really looking toward as you get five, seven, ten years down the road. But Utah's plan has been approved and it's been a number of months. We're recording this in the middle of 2020. Um, what are what are you seeing so far or at least what are you looking for over the next number of months to see if, you know, you're on on the path that you want to be on? You know, I think um, what we're looking for is that flip, like I said, and I think that that's going to be really dependent on our ability to stand up and utilize prevention services. Um, Justin, jump in here. I mean, when you think about what this looks like for us in the coming months, um, I think we, first of all, we have to acknowledge that um, having a pandemic in the middle of your family first implementation is, is a little bit of a challenge. Um, slowed us down, um, certainly put our focus on some other things. Um, and yet at the same time, I'm going to make an argument that that very pandemic also was also a refocus of what is it we're trying to create here. It, it makes you look at what really matters. And Family First, I think, also does that if you apply it meaningfully to your system. And so I actually see Family First and the timing of it with the pandemic. Um, it's easy to view it as a, as a threat or a challenge. But um, for us, it actually integrates even more fully into a validation of what we need to do for families. Yeah, I would just... Um, uh, uh Agree. And second, that one of the interesting things about doing this in the context of the pandemic is that um, you you realize just how central the family is. Um, uh, not that we any of us need to be reminded about that, but um, but in the context of this, we all anchored back to family in one way or another. As a society, we anchored back to family and to home. And um, and so. Um, it just reinforces the importance of us um, focusing on strengthening that, um, and uh, and so I see us. I, I see it um, doubling our resolve, and at the same time, creating some new challenges for us. Um, we anticipate some financial challenges, and that's uh, as Diane already mentioned. Um, we're a fiscally conservative state. Um, so the financing we have for this has been challenging anyway, and navigating that um, is probably going to be increasingly um, challenging over the course of the next year. Um, uh, and so we will need to figure out how we move forward in standing up these front end uh, prevention services in a manner that's sustainable and effective um, while also just uh, managing the existing system that we have to um, keep moving forward with until we see that shift, until we see that switch that, um, that Diane's talking about. I'm curious as you know, the environment that we are in, 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 you know, where home means so much more because home is also office, it's also school, it's also daycare, it's also everything. Um, would you ask, would you have asked yourself different questions or looked at different needs if you were developing your plan during this time now? 
Honestly, I don't really think so because, because the questions we asked and the answers we received and the, and the work that we did as a community actually goes exactly where we need to, to go regarding home and family. Family first goes exactly where we need to go. You know, it's, it's been an interesting process. I mean, one thing I would say is, like I said, it's intimidating at the beginning as you're writing your prevention plan. And we had very ambitious goals to, to, to actually be, have an approved prevention plan you know, for the first quarter in October of 2019, that was possible. That was ambitious. And um, there was a part of us. I mean, I'm not going to lie and say we didn't sit back and say, you know, there's some time there that we could opt out. And um, we could sit back and we could see what everyone else does and we could learn from what everyone else does. And then we could do this. And we had that conversation. We had that moment where we said, do we, do we leap or do we wait? And, you know, I will say that what we ultimately decided is, um, one, when you leap, you actually help create the very thing you're also responding to. So being, being leading out, you have the opportunity to ask the questions, to poke and to prod and to push um, uh, in ways that actually impact how the whole conversation is going about the implementation. And thus you kind of get to influence a little bit that way, which I think was a unique opportunity. In addition, we sort of believed we know ourselves and we know that in Utah, we like to do a good job and we like to do it well. You know, we're kind of, we're kind of, we're kind of A students in Utah in some ways, you know, that's just kind of how our whole workforce and our whole culture is actually. And not just in child welfare, but across, across our society, we're, we're just kind of, you know, we do a good job with things. And we kind of took the, we took the philosophy that um, whether spoken or unspoken, that we're going to leap because if anybody can do it, we can do it. And we had faith in that. We had faith that if there was something undoable, if we couldn't do it, it would also be obvious to the broader system that it couldn't be done, if that makes sense. If you're putting forth your best and it still can't be achieved, then the system's going to track and adapt to modify for that. And it did with the Family First Transition Act. I mean, most of the things that we identified as really significant barriers early on, despite our best efforts, were addressed through the Transition Act. And so going early and not letting that stop us, but having faith in the broader system, which we did, um, I think was a benefit. And, and I would encourage other jurisdictions to continue to have that faith in one another and in the Children's Bureau and in the supportive groups like Casey Family Programs. I mean, we're all there to lift each other and we all want a common sense, doable implementation. No one wants this to fail. And, and no one wants this to, um, to ruin anybody's child welfare system or anything like that. Quite the contrary, we all want it to succeed. And so I think seeing it through that lens of opportunity, um, with that leap of faith a little bit, um, it helped us, it helped us to not hold back and it helped us to not wait. And as a result, it's been a much more dynamic and fruitful process. You asked the question a few minutes ago, uh, what kind of child welfare system do you want to be? Well, there's the opportunity to, 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 to make that happen, taking that, th those steps forward. 
Diane Moore, Justin Naylor, I, I thank you guys so much for being a part of this, for 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 your your candid honesty and your time and the work that you guys are, are doing in, in the state of Utah. Appreciate your your, your the energy and the dedication, and again, uh, your time to chat with us here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. It's an honor. If you head over to childwelfare.gov and search podcast, you'll find the page for this episode where we've posted links to the Utah Homeworks program that Diane mentioned. You'll also find a link to the episode where we discussed Washington, D.C.'s journey to develop their Title IV prevention plan, along with a number of the other episodes that we've released surrounding the Family First Prevention Services Act. We'll also have links to other resources surrounding Family First. It's all at childwelfare.gov. You can find all our episodes here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Go ahead and subscribe to get future episodes delivered right to you. We are so happy and grateful you've decided to spend your time with us here on the Information Gateway podcast. Of course, when you are looking for information on best practices, state statutes involving child welfare, training, resources, tools for families, or other information surrounding adoption, foster care, prevention, and family strengthening, please visit Child Welfare Information Gateway at childwelfare.gov. My thanks to Diane Moore and Justin Naylor from the Utah Department of Health. And of course, my thanks to you for listening and joining us here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. I'm Tom Oates. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.